Welcome to By the Sword, where we discuss the modern study of historical European martial arts, or HEMA, with instructors, experts and martial artists from all over the world. Today's episode is an interview with Matthew Ford, an antique weapon dealer in the UK. We look at Matthew's amazing collection and learn some of the history behind the pieces. The episode was recorded 8th of August 2021. Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode with my guest Matthew Ford of Antique Steel in the UK. Hello. Hi Matthew. Um, Thank you for coming on the show. I've been looking forward to this. So this is different from all my previous uh, podcasts with antique sword uh, collectors and dealers where I was um, doing it via live stream. So this, yep. this is a pre-recorded episode. So we're in your lovely home looking at your collection of very impressive swords. <laughs> We've got Thank some you. spread out on the table in front of us. Yep. And let's talk about your beginnings. How did you get into this? Well, I've, I was a very typical into military stuff boy. Um, so I've always loved, absolutely loved uh, military history and things like that. Um, but I never knew swords, real swords were were things that you could buy um, until probably about 10-15 years ago um, and I found a bayonet in an antique shop um, and it was £45 right. and I thought I, I was like that's so cool that's a real that is a real um, World War One era mm-hmm. object that had been through the war um, and I found it quite inspirational because I've always loved going to you know military museums and things like that and I thought I could own I could own that that could be mine um and I I ummed and ahed for so long um because I was like 45 pounds just on an object that's gonna sit and do nothing um because you're not really allowed to use bayonets that much anymore not really <laughs> I mean you could use it for chopping your veg and things could. like that but yeah no um and then I and in the end I bought it and then I realised, so I did the research because there's lots of markings and stuff on British bayonets, so you can mm-hmm. figure out where it's made, who it was made by, dates it was issued to uh, soldiers and things like that. So I, I, I got um, inspired by all the research and um, also I found that it was actually a bit of a bargain. Mm. So it was about half price of what it should have been. So that made me think, well, if I sold this bayonet, at the normal price I could maybe buy two bayonets um and I didn't actually sell that one but roughly Mm -hmm. that's what started me off that's what got me going because the next things I bought I um after I sort of studied them and and researched them um I then pretty much sold them all on Mm -hmm. and then used that to keep going and it sort of snowballed from there so I'm, I'm fairly late uh late at joining this um, and I certainly wish I'd started sooner with the actual collecting and cleaning up swords and things like that. Um, but, 
Yeah, that's that's it's, it all started. It all started with one bayonet, <laughs> one underpriced bayonet. Yeah, exactly. Which I still have. Do you still over, have it? Yeah, I've got it over there. Oh wow! Because it fits a rifle I've got. Yeah. So yeah, I'm like oh, I can't I can't get rid of it now. It's the first no, thing it's the one. Yeah. Oh. And then bayonets. Yeah. Bayonets are pretty good because um, to get you into collecting because they're cheap mm. and plentiful because the governments and the ar- armories. Um, churned them out in their millions mm. um, so they're a lot easier more accessible than swords so you'll often find uh, sword collectors started with bayonets or knives pocket knives and things like mm. that so it sort of gets you into it it gets you hooked and then you sort of work up the gateway to, to drug exactly yeah so you work <laughs> up to swords uh, and that's exactly what happened with me although I, I wanted firearms more mm. um, but owning them in the UK is a little bit more complicated and they have to be uh, deactivated and things like that, unless you have live ones, in which case licenses come into play and things. Um, and it was just a bit more hassle with mm. firearms. Um, so I sort of, before some government changes came in, I sold machine guns and stuff, anything I had, pretty much, and went on for um, more for the swords and things. So I've sort of, I've sort of nestled in. To swords you found and your daggers. niche. Yeah, I found my niche. You, yeah. you went in. You, you came for the guns. You stayed exactly. for the swords. Yeah. yeah. So, is this your full time job? Um, I would like it to be. <laughs> it's. Uh, I have certain disabilities, mm. so I don't have the energy to fully um, devote to being a proper full time dealer. Mm-hmm. And there's so many aspects of that job you do need quite a lot of energy and mm-hmm. you need um, uh, you need to be able to get out and about a lot and things like that. So I'm hoping to have another go um, next year, probably. But it's, I'm, it's pretty, I mean, I suppose I could say I'm a part-time dealer, mm-hmm. um, but at the moment it's, it's still a bit more like uh, a collector who sells. Right. And to fund the yeah. collection as well. Um, but lots of people have asked me for things like restoration services, whether I can clean up swords and things like that for people. Um, so I, I've turned down quite a lot of it um, right. due to like health issues and things. But my health issues go up and down quite a lot. Mm-hmm. So um, on the next rise, I'm going to have another go and fingers crossed and see what happens. Sort of another thing. another. St- Stab at it. Yes. Good pun. <laughs> so we've got some of your current collection here. Let's let's go and have a look at some of them. Okay. Describe them to us, what we have. Right, well, um, favourite swords was always going to be really difficult. Mm. Your, the current <laughs> favourite swords, all. yeah. <laughs> um, so I've chosen a few that represent the different reasons why I collect. Okay. Mm, that's good. So I've also chosen two... Uh, to get your opinion on them because oh. they, they, there's two here well let's start with these two then okay. so I've written a book about Italian swords okay. of the uh, military swords of the 1800s to, to about 1900 and this is an area that um, has not been studied which is why I sort of felt compelled to do it mm. so 90% of Italian swords from that era that you see at dealers uh, and even museums are wrongly identified and it started to annoy me years ago because I was like, this, this chap says this is a whatever. And then these people say that it's something different. So I started to catalogue everything. Right. 
and try and figure out all the discrepancies and I, I contacted museums and, and loads of people and it ended up being quite uh, extensive notes which I thought well I need to release this to the community now um, and basically turned it into a book because right. um, I'm, I'm a writer anyway so I've okay. written copy and stuff for years and years so it was the natural next sort of step to turn it into a book mm-hmm. um, so that's going to be released on my website uh, when I finally finish the thing because <laughs> I'm doing the illustrations but at the moment um, Italian Swords there's two different funny little features right. of Italian Swords so the first one is uh, let's go for the old one. So this is an 1833 model, mm-hmm. Albertina. So this is a uh, infantry officer's sword. This particular one has a non-regulation blade. But the interesting thing about this is the finger loop. Mm. So I was going to give you that and oh, it's see like, what it looks you like a, think. It looks a bit like a trigger. It is a bit like a trigger, yeah. Ooh, it's quite hefty. It's heavier than it uh, appears yeah. to be. Yeah. My natural inclination is to put two fingers that's in there. What, that's what I think as well. Um, and it's got a nice sort of heart-shaped guard, or yeah. like a leaf, I guess. It's like a folded over leaf. Yeah, like a boat shell. Yeah. They call it a boat shell. Okay. It's not totally boat-shaped. Um, yeah, and it's got uh, a knuckle bow, a yeah. what's called a wax seal pommel. Oh, yes, like yeah, a stamp so it's like kind a, of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this blade is heavier than normal. Yeah. Yeah, so the, that's non-regulation. So the officer has thought... Um, I'd quite like maybe an old family blade or a, a bit more of a stabby blade. So they've chosen that one instead of the regulation one, which was a, a little bit lighter mm. and a bit plainer. Yeah, it's very sort of forward weighted. But so supposedly the finger loop uh, from my research is supposed to help the, uh, the wielder mm-hmm. place the tip more accurately. Yeah. Would you agree with that? I'd, I'd agree with that. You can even rest your finger alongside oh, yeah. the yeah. inside of the guard there. Yeah. and then get better purchase mm. and point it um, so you could hold it kind of like that um, I've got my middle finger through the ring and my index finger ag- against the back of the the guard there so it's sort of knuckle forward so does it feel quite nimble? it feels, oh, I'll be honest it's quite forward weighted so I would find my arm get quite tired by it's, this it's quite a solid blade is yeah. this a spadroon? Um, I, think, I think we could because call it's it cutting spadroon. and it's yeah. got a point it's very and it's sort of medium chunky. Length. Yeah, it, it's um, <laughs> the the regulation blade is more spadruny. Yeah, there's like three. Is it three fullers on there? Yes, three fullers on that yeah. one. Yeah. Nice. So that this armed the Italian infantry officers until 1855, mm-hmm. um, and then we start. I think. Do you know about Massiello and Radiello? Radiello, yes. Yeah. Um, so they influenced the the military yeah. fencing schools um, in Italy, obviously. And one of the things that came out of it is our second sword mm-hmm. design. So this is an eighteen seventy three. This is an eighteen seventy three. So this is cavalry officer, uh, again Italy. Mm-hmm. But the unusual thing about this one is that it has a thumb niche. So I mm. think. Uh, Radaeli was had a student called Captain Settimo del Frate. Right. Um, and he was he became involved with designing swords for the Italian army. And so he brought in this 
Domnish. Oh, handy. To so put the thumb on the up. back. Well, I think, yeah, that, yeah, that's what it's for. So it's got a little, like a little, like you say, as you say, niche, like a little Yeah, an position. alcove. Yeah. yeah, to hide your thumb behind and line your thumb up nicely along uh, the back edge of the sabre. But that's a much lighter yeah. and more nimble sort of blade. Very pretty, very shiny. So it's pipe-backed, um, mm-hmm. that blade, and it's etched with all the the usual sort of uh, floral motifs and military yeah. military symbols and stuff like that. Little halberds in there yeah. and things. It's very cool. Like this. <laughs> that is awesome. So I had to bring up Italian swords. Yeah. With the years of grind that I've had to do, mm. uh, and it's been really difficult. The research has been really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been an absolutely massive project. But yeah, I thought it'd be interesting to give it to a real, <laughs> a real life wielder of swords because I don't really, I don't really. Yeah, uh, I mean, them. I think yeah, it's lovely to hold that one. And that thumb um, position makes a big difference to yeah. how it 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 handles. But there's a lot of debate about pipe backs right and how effective they were and they're generally not very liked why is that um it's quite complicated okay (laughs) (laughs) for another episode (laughs) yeah um i think generally um and i think it's probably true of the the many pipe backs i've owned they're generally a bit flimsy Mm -hmm. um they never quite feel very robust to me all right um but there are some that are quite robust, like this one here. So I think it's one of the things, you know, like the spadroon debate, mm-hmm. where some people swear that they're absolutely awful, and some people say, well, no, there's really good examples. Is that, is that kind it's of that a thing? It's that kind really? of a thing, yeah. yeah. Should we have another sword? Yes, please. Okay, so uh, this one is purely about feel. So. One of the funny things is a lot of British military swords are all very similar. They look the same because they have to conform to government yeah, patterns. patterns. Yeah. But you can get five swords of the same pattern and they will all feel slightly different because of different manufacturers, different weights and that kind of thing. So sometimes you'll get a sword and it will speak to you mm-hmm. and it will, it, it will just feel amazing or it will look amazing, even though it's extremely similar to another example from that pattern. Mm. So this this is one of those swords. So this is Indian, mm-hmm. an Indian shamshir. It has a tall wire hilt, um, but it just feels amazing to me. It just feels right to me. So it might not feel right to anybody else, <laughs> but it's really sharp. Yeah. Uh, it has a laminated steel blade. Uh, there's a cartouche which it has the maker's name in gold. Yeah. Um, and it also has a, uh, I think it's a little passage from the Quran. Mm-hmm. Um, the hilt is quite a small one. Mm-hmm. Um, most tall war hilts are pretty small. Yeah. Um, but it's quite a comfortable one. It's snug to the hand. hand. Yeah, it's quite comfortable in my hand. Um, and the actual handle section is longer and more slender than normal. So people associate this style with an area in i think it's in modern day pakistan called Sindh. right so back then it was in uh, india so this is often called a Sindhi hilt um but it just feels lovely to me it just feels really nice very cutty <laughs> uh, so you have you feel I'll that have a go it's thing. very curvy it is very curvy yeah. it's more curvy than normal 
So that's not stand, That's not sort of standard curved curvature. Most tulwars are pretty curved, but uh, that's a little bit more curved, yeah. Yeah, it does really want to cut. That's lovely. So you get, so this is a lovely sword. And actually, this is not my sword. This is, um, I'm selling this for a friend. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it could have no decorations on it. It could have no gold. Yeah. The blade could, I mean, it's interesting that it's laminated. So that's interesting to me. But it, it doesn't have to be mm. laminated. It's just the feel of it is mm. just really nice in my hand. But then you'll get somebody else that will pick it up and think, this nah. is not, yeah, I don't really like this one. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it, how objects just speak to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can, I can, holding this, I can feel the kind of motion that it, it commands. Yeah, it does. Uh, it, it wants yeah, to cut. It wants some, to cut. Yeah, some sabers absolutely do. They just want to cut. Um, and I don't know. Do you do you get that feeling with things like rapiers? That I'm yeah, I think I've had that kind of what do they call that Stendhal syndrome? Sometimes when you pick up, like yeah. people get that when they look at great works of art. I've yeah. I've experienced that when I've picked up swords whether they're antique ones or just ones that I wasn't yeah. even particularly interested in for example one time I was at a, a stand and there was some long swords and I was never ever interested in long sword at that point yeah. and then I just picked up one and I was like and it made me utter a noise <laughs> I was like if it's made me say something that's it's, always a good sign it's a good yeah. sign and then that after that I was interested in long swords so yeah. it's it I have had the kind of thing um picking up swords in the at handling sessions at the Wallace, for example, right. where it's just almost a kind of religious experience, just yeah. for a brief moment, you yeah. kind of... You do, you get a connection. Yeah. You do get a connection with them, um, I, especially when you're so passionate about them. Mm. And also, I think, when you've seen lots of them as well, it makes uh, it makes that, that one perfect one that comes along yeah. even more powerful, because you've had, you know, 50, 1845 patterns. Mm. over the years sort of things then when you get that one perfect one it's suddenly like oh my gosh yeah i have to keep this one um right so should we have another one yes yes okay so the other reason why i collect is history i absolutely love the history mm -hmm. um and i not everybody agrees with this but i think in many cases the history of an object um is more important than say condition yeah like so we've got a fairly rough sword here. Mm -hmm. So this is this is pretty beaten. This this saber. So it's a plain blade, uh, uh, with a wide fuller. There's no decoration on it. There's no. It probably would have been engraved, um, and then filled with gold, and then blued. So right. it would have probably would have been a very, very handsome, yeah, expensive blade. But there's nothing left on on it. There's water damage. We can see here, yeah. there's lots of uh, water's probably got into the scabbard and then someone's left it in their attic for five years or something like that. Um, we can see, this is called a scarf weld. Mm -hmm. So it's very visible here, which isn't very pretty, but scarf welds are really interesting. Mm -hmm. That's another tangent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We've lost all the wire from the shagreen, right. the grip. There's no gold left on the hilts whatsoever. Um, but this is one of my favourite swords because the history behind it is is huge to me. Mm -hmm. So this is 1803 pattern. So this is quite a quite a famous type of sword that a lot of people like because they're they're so pretty. Yeah. Um, and the the blade is is uh, very redolent of the 1796 pattern, like cavalry saber, which everybody absolutely loves. 
Um, it's like a sm slightly smaller scaled down version. But this would have been owned um, and used for, you know, in the Napoleonic sort of era. Yeah. So you have all those, the Peninsula War and that kind of thing. So, I mean, I grew up with Sharp and yes. stuff. Where, you know, everybody's always saying Sharp, you know, <laughs> when it comes to sword, sword stuff. And it, it inspired, like, loads of people. And, yes, I'm, I'm one of those uh, inspirees. Um, and he was in a uh, rifles company. And this is a rifle sword. So we can see here, we've got string bugle. Mm -hmm. So that's the symbol of the rifle companies. Right. So they were light infantry and they were the elite of the time. And originally the officers had uh, spadroons, which they didn't really like. Yeah. They were always getting into fights because they, they, they would skirmish ahead. They would uh, cover the flanks and that kind of thing of the main line infantry. So they were always getting into scraps. Um, and they saw themselves as pretty elite as well. So they wanted a cooler sword, but that was also really good at fighting. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the 1796 Spadroon didn't quite meet those criteria for them. Mm -hmm. So they came up with this, the 1803. So uh, 1803s with the strong bugle are rarer than most of the normal types. So already this is, this is more interesting. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's just to hold it, and think this could have been at the Battle of Talavera, mm -hmm. it could have been um, at Waterloo, all those you know, really famous famous names. And so the condition doesn't really matter to me. Yeah. So I, I wanted to show you a battered one. It's seen so some it, things. Yeah, it's seen some things, it has. Oh, wow. Do you like it? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> I, I do like that one. That's a lot lighter than I expected it to be. Is it really? Yeah, that's way more balanced. Have you I handled thought... the 1796 like cavalry, the really long, it's like that one, stirrup right. tilt. I don't think I've got one to hand. Because the the light cavalry one is a bit too heavy for me. It's a mm. bit too uh, forward. Forward weighted, yeah, yeah. I can feel it pulling yeah, down towards there. the tip. But this is nicely. Yeah, so this is the yeah. same sort of thing right, except yeah. scaled down. And it feels really nice. Yeah, I do like that one. But it's it's holding that handle. Yeah. And thinking, where else has that been? Yeah, who else At has held you? At what time? Yeah. Has, has uh, Sean Bean held it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. It, yeah, so I, I love that. I love the history. Yeah. But there are, there's lots of collectors who um, would not look at that twice. Yeah. Because it's corroded. It doesn't have any bling to it. Different values. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, yeah, it's, it's totally valid. Everybody else has, everybody's uh, way of of collecting is all perfectly fine to me like in the same way that you know you like you just said someone picks up a sword and goes wow another person will go yeah, meh absolutely yeah so that yeah. that made me that definitely made me yeah. say wow just to hold it it did i noticed that <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's lovely um okay and i think i've got another history one yeah go for it let's, let's right so so i'm in. trying to give a bit of a range so this <laughs> is quite a modern sword okay um so it's still antique this is quite an interesting sword, but for very, very geeky reasons. Mm -hmm. So we're going to nerd out a little bit. So this is... As if this isn't nerdy enough. <laughs> <laughs> this is super, we're going to get super nerdy. <laughs> uh, so this is an 1897 pattern. Right. So this is the, the type of sword that's still in use with the British Army today. So when you, when you uh, graduate Sandhurst, you'll buy this sort of sword. Um, and they still have to buy them themselves. Yeah. Well. Unluckily, um, but this one. So this is so they're very very common. Eighteen ninety seven patterns, 
pretty much the cheapest antique sword type you can get in Britain. There's so many of them, but this one has got a lot of bling on it. <laughs> do we still say bling? I don't no, think I, do, it, I don't do, think do we, we do, no. but it doesn't matter. Okay. You can edit that out yeah. and put something cool. I don't in. think there's many Zoomers listening <laughs> to my show, so <laughs> we can say it. Um, with it. So this was owned by a chap who um, founded or helped to found. I think he was the second in command. Um, the forerunner to MI5 and MI6 during the First World War for, for Britain. Um, so he was tasked with finding German spies right. in Britain. Um, and we didn't have a proper government agency to help out with that. Uh, and he, so he was the second in command and so he uh, established it. Wow. So already you've got a bit of really interesting history, spy master sword. Mm. Um, but also it was made by Henry Wilkinson. Mm-hmm. So Henry Wilkinson is a really big name. He was basically the um, the most celebrated British sword maker of the Victorian period, and probably going into nineteen uh, nineties that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so Henry Wilkinson proved his blades. So he would put every blade into an approuvette, which yep. was a machine that would bend it to make sure it was uh, had the right tolerances. Um, so he was famous having really high standards. Um, but they kept notes of the um, provings. So they stamped every spine mm. with a number. So you can look up um, the number in the proof book and see who bought it. Oh, wow. So that's how, because um, the chap's name is not on this sword anywhere. No. So that's how you trace Henry Wilkinson. Um, but then the owner paid a lot of money to get every single extra he possibly could and uh i've never i haven't seen one with so many he maxed out so, yeah he totally did so if you have a look so we have here uh cameronians mm-hmm. so he was in the cameronians um we have a strong bugle mm-hmm. uh which he's paid for as well we also have i think that's his um family crest we also have his monogram Mm-hmm. So that's his initials. Mm. Then if we turn it over, he's paid... So this is the Victorian cipher. Right. So this is Victoria's royal cipher. But he's paid for it to be mirrored. Just extra. So it looks cooler. Oh. <laughs> um, and also he's paid because he was in the 30th... What's that saying? Punjab second? Infantry. Yeah, there you go. So he was also in an Indian uh, regiment mm-hmm. or British Indian. Um, and yeah, so he's he's basically paid for everything. And yeah. it's very rare you see that. But we're going to get even more geeky now. Okay. Because this is not the original handle. So on the back here, it says patent solid. Right. Henry Wilkinson. So if you had loads and loads of money, um, or if you were more of a sword fighting aficionado, mm-hmm. you would probably want a non a non-regulation sort of blade um, yeah. and you would you know to suit your sort of fighting style stand out yeah. from the crowd and to stand out yeah um, and Henry Wilkinson offered patent solid hills uh, which were supposed to be more robust than the normal one so uh, a normal blade goes into the hilt with a tang so the patent solid hilt the tang does not slim down it's mm-hmm. the whole width it's the width yeah and that was 
uh, patented by a chap called Charles Reeves. Um, and it's one of my greatest life mysteries of how Reeves managed to get a patent for a solid handle when they've been around in, you know, like kitchen knives. Yeah. Anyway, literally for thousands of years. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't understand how, how did he did he that. He was a bit it? of a character, Charles Reeves, yeah. He did, he did certain things like um, uh, not fulfil any of his government contracts for, for blades because he was just so hopeless and stuff like that. So he's quite, he's quite funny. I think he probably was a bit of a wheeler dealer, yeah. Um, but then Henry Wilkinson bought the patent off him mm-hmm. so he could do he solid, could. solid ones. But this isn't a solid one. Oh. So the owner of this sword has had so much money, um, he, he had a solid hilt put on it, which would have cost more money. And then he decided, I'll, I'll swap it out. And he's got a normal hilt, a normal uh, handle. So, yeah, he had a, he had a lot of, a lot of uh, dapper characteristics, this owner. But again, it's the history of it. Yeah. But, so this 1897 pattern is totally thrust-centric. So the British army decided, um, we're going to do away with the whole cut versus thrust debate. <laughs> and we are just, just going to choose one. Stabby. And they chose yeah, stabbiness. <laughs> so it doesn't even really have a uh, sharpened edge. It's just the final, the final handful the of edge, inches. Yeah, it's blunt, isn't it? Yeah, totally. It's completely rounded off. Yeah, and the it's edge. A, I mean, yeah, dumbbell shaped cross section. What about the point? Wow. So yeah, Henry Wilkinson, our um, swords are very desirable amongst the collectors and um, dealers love them as well because you can buy a sword by Wilkinson and then let's say it costs 200 pounds you can then research the owner mm-hmm. and if you're lucky and let's say the owner did something really amazing or you got a Victoria Cross or something like that mm-hmm. that sword value has then gone up like potentially a huge amount I've seen like sometimes on your website you have like letters and things that go with yeah objects. Yeah. Is that because you've gone and researched the owner, found their, you know, their literature, and yes, then join yeah. rejoin them with their object, or do they, do they tend much. to arrive together like that? Um, they tend not to arrive. I think I've only had maybe one or two that have had lots of things with them. Mm-hmm. Um, like photographs and stuff that have you know been like a package of yeah. the, the provenance. Um, I think pretty much all the other times I've found owners, it's been my research, mm-hmm. um, and there's there's lots online now. Um, so if you're willing to dig deep and look through lots and lots of lists of people, um, like in these hearts lists books. Yeah. Um, so for instance, if you get a. Henry Wilkinson from the 1850s or something um, you can actually then look up so you'll get the name from mm-hmm. the proof book um, and then you can look up in this kind of a book mm-hmm. these are all the lists of who was in the army at the time mm-hmm. which regiment that kind of thing so you, so can, you can narrow then, it down yeah and you can trace the owner and you can see what their career was and if they got any letters after their names like VC and things like that, um, and then that, that makes your sword worth more. Have you ever, like, managed to find descendants of owners? Um, I had a sword for a really posh uh, English family, and 
I think I put the research online and a descendant messaged me about the sword and um, asked to buy it. And I had an interesting debate on ethics with with some people about it because I felt like it should be reunited with with the the family. But he never got back to me. So so I I made the decision. I was like, yeah, I should do this. Imagine that. that Someone contacts you. (laughs) The sword of your family. Great great grandfather. But you know, it was sold in the first place out yeah. of the family. Yeah. So somebody didn't really care that much no. about it. And unfortunately, you know, lots of swords do end up in skips and things like that and handed into the police to be destroyed. Tragic. Because people a lot of people don't um either don't understand what they've got value wise or heritage wise mm. or they see them as dangerous objects yeah, and things. Like, it's a real shame, I think. I think yeah, I do sometimes encounter that attitude of this is dangerous, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. Why have you got a sword? I was like, yeah. I'm going to call the police. It's like, well, you can do, but my, you know, several of my students are in the yeah. police. You know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of fear misinformation. Of, yeah, uh, yeah, about that kind of thing in the UK and online as well. Yeah, yeah. it's odd. Uh, talking of misinformation, one of the things I was going to um, talk to you about, ask you about, was the sort of myths around importing and exporting weapons and blades in the UK because it's a bit of a murky area for a lot of people yeah it's um it's quite complicated um so I export quite a lot quite a lot of my sales generally go to Europe um America and Australia Mm -hmm. um and it's quite easy to do um once you get into the hang of it um, so I use a courier called Parcel Force, and you just book it all online, but you have to have an account with them mm-hmm. um, for certain things like the age verification system that we now need to um, uh, adhere to in sending blades within the UK, um, which a lot of people don't do. Mm. Um, but it's, it's complicated in that there's lots of little rules to follow but it's easy in that the process is basically just the same as sending it any parcel. Mm. Um, and as long as you declare exactly what it is. But you can have mishaps. So um, recently, and I think it was with the whole Brexit uh, drama, mm-hmm. um, there's been a lot of problems with customs. Right. Um, and I think there's, there's quite a few people um, look at a sword-like object and say that that's got to be illegal surely even though yeah. even though it's not so i now send things um with lots of information attached saying that it's um use all the right tariff codes which will tell customs exactly what kind of an item this is um and also i make sure it's really obvious it's antique and things like that mm-hmm. um but i was you've got i've i'm always really truthful and most people i think probably well maybe not most but a lot of people aren't really truthful um and i've had i've had lots of deliveries of iron pokers for instance and <laughs> things like that where you you read customs forms and you think oh right so you just people put in like military objects yeah things like that and yeah i don't know i'm just maybe i'm too well we we're gonna get in like sorry this is a kind of similar but a prob- problem we have in the hema community is if yeah. you're taking uh, training swords abroad with you to yeah. go to an event for example every airline has a different policy yeah 
and it changes all the time. It yep. depends on who's working that day. Yeah. So the sort of standard advice we say to each other is like, tell them it's sporting equipment. Yeah. And it's my sporting stuff. Don't <laughs> yeah. say the word sword. It's just yeah. sporting equipment. <laughs> what sport is it? It's yeah. fencing, if you must yeah. know. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's the, it's the same. And courier to courier is has different rules as well. Mm. Um, so there's one big one where they don't handle it's an international company and they don't handle swords in the uk so if you're in america for instance you can use them to send your sword over to the uk and then the company itself will send it back right it's so even within the company it has different rules so that's where it's really complicated and mm-hmm. it can be a headache but the actual just sending them is is pretty easy um, and most of these swords as well, most antique swords are not really that dangerous, mm-hmm. um, especially when you compare them to things like kitchen knives. Yeah. Um, and so they're pretty safe in transit as long as you package them sensibly. And my goodness, I've had some that haven't been packaged sensibly. Um, they're, they're okay, really. And, you know, you put a cork on the end or something if it's a particularly pointy one mm-hmm. uh, and you make sure they can't hurt any anybody that's working and, and taking the parcels and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's fairly easy, but the actual fine print is quite complicated, yeah. and it it, um, it the becomes red tape. more like work, yeah, yeah. or tracking down swords that have got lost. But I don't, I haven't really had anything that's really got lost. The worst has been um, a uh, friend had a couple of swords sent to me from Europe, um, and they were intercepted by customs at the whole Brexit sort of time and they were destroyed I think mm. uh, so that was a couple of thousand pounds oh, worth. Um, and it's they they were antique so they shouldn't have been mm. so it's customers just took them and destroyed them which is a bit of a shame that they didn't give us the chance to say well we can prove to you it's antique and oh. it's completely legal and here's the legislation and stuff like that that's very very frustrating yeah talking of which what is the most tedious part of your trade uh, <laughs> the Quite a lot of the red tape yeah. um, is tedious and record keeping um, and packaging up. <laughs> yes, packaging I up. I like packaging do you? things. Oh, come and do my I'll packaging there. Okay, I'll save them up I in a corner. It. I've, got, I've got all the boxes, <laughs> so you can just, you can just crack on. Um, I like them when they're packaged. They look really yeah, nice. Yeah, they look so like pretty, little, yeah. little gifts like on Christmas. the Christmas tree, yeah. Um, but I think, in general packaging them up and then booking them in to go is quite boring mm-hmm. to me um and it's one of those things because you think oh i'll buy and sell swords i love swords swords are amazing i love mm. military history everything will be fantastic but you end up doing less and less sword stuff yeah. and more and more admin, admin stuff. more and more yeah Sounds packaging. Familiar. yeah it's exactly what it's like isn't it and, <laughs> yeah you yeah. end up doing more yeah. spreadsheets exactly than, uh, yeah, totally. Keeping all the records swords, and yeah. things. But um, I, don't, I don't mind anything, really. There's not, no part of it that I think I couldn't do. I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Um, so I think the actual sword part and the passion part over, overrules mm. any, any of the negatives. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think probably now you've volunteered to be my packager. <laughs> it's that, going to get even better. Now. I'm, feeling good, I'm feeling better. <laughs> So what, what, can you remember what piece has ever caused you the most headaches? Oh, it was probably those two that were taken by customs, yeah, yeah. because um, when customs sees something, 
I think they automatically notified the police. So right. I had a couple of lovely members of the police pop round and we had a chat. Uh, and they were just basically checking I wasn't um, a psychopath. Yeah. And luckily I'm not a psychopath. So <laughs> I don't think For so. the record. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was probably that because you get, you get scary sounding letters and stuff as well saying it's going to be seized and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the police, they don't book in when they're going to come and see you. No. So you're unprepared. So I opened this, the door in my pyjamas. Yeah. And then suddenly I have to look like, oh, I know what I'm talking about. And yeah, you know, it's real historical antiques and things. Yeah. Uh, but fortunately, I showed them website and they were, they were really interested, as most people are. Mm. Most people, when you, when you say, this is the kind of thing that you deal with. They're, they're suddenly asking you loads of questions. Yeah, absolutely. Fun. And also, it's like you said, a lot of um, uh, people in police and things collect as well. Yeah. Uh, quite a lot of my peers and friends, uh, just generally in all the different sort of antique communities, um, in regards to weaponry, so many f- were from the army or mm-hmm. the navy or uh, the police, that kind of um, thing. Sort of military connections. Yeah. So we've got all your current faves on the table i'm gonna ask you a very tough question now what is your all right let's make it slightly easier what's your current favorite piece not the greatest of all time that's really (laughs) difficult um okay i'll say i'll say one of my most recent ones yeah okay so i am extremely shallow (laughs) in in that i often my my favorite piece will be the most recent one because i'm really excited because it's new Mm-hmm. Um, so this is one of the most recent ones, the, yeah. but it's quite interesting as well. So this is a, a Japanese wakizashi mm. blade, really sharp, still. Um, but this one is probably from late thirteen hundreds. Wow! So really super old. Wow! Um, and we know that I'm not a huge Japanese expert at all, uh, but huge ja- Japanese experts have told me the signature. Um, will uh, helps to date it so that's how we know the time so it's lost its handle and we um, still have some of the fittings and this is copper mm. uh, and i think all these are copper and the, the peg i have a zuba which is the guard, the guard yeah. up there yeah um but so this is i'm i'm handling it and i'll yeah, clean it afterwards I like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh it's Jap- from the 1300s <laughs> japanese um swords are extremely highly polished and so you don't really handle them because your your fingerprints as you can see mm. my fingerprints putting <laughs> putting acids all over it so i'll clean it off but i i think it's important to be able to handle stuff yeah. um to really feel mm. the how tangible these yeah. sort of objects are so you can have a look might like to touch it yeah Gosh, it's old. It is sharp though. But we can see the high carbon cutting edge. Yes. So you can see that it's darkness. Darker. Yeah. Uh, and that, that is a feature that we also see in Indian swords as well. Mm. But yeah, it's so old and it's just so incredible. Amazing. I mean, it predates Tudors and all that kind of thing. So that's yeah. probably my current favourite. Yeah. But also, that's not in great condition. Is it your favourite because of just how old it is and the condition it is for its age, or? I think I think it's my favourite because of the age. Yeah. Um, I also don't have I don't dabble much in Japanese items. Because um, they're they're scary. Usually. Japanese <laughs> items are scary. Because um, it's it's a very quite a, maybe strict's not the right word, but it's quite a rigid yeah. area of collecting. 
there's a lot of very specific knowledge um, and a lot of people in that community would not be that interested in this even though it's really really old mm -hmm. because of the condition because of uh, this corrosion, these scars. It doesn't take all the boxes. No, yeah, they they really really like their swords to look perfect. perfect yeah, yeah. Um, but luckily for me, that means I get to own this one and touch it. it. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I don't mind. I don't mind the scars. Yeah. And things like that. Obviously, if there was two identical and one was in perfect condition, I'd prefer the perfect condition. Yeah. But uh, yeah, scars scars are good, mm -hmm. aren't they? You know. They tell a story. Absolutely, yeah. So that's my that's probably my current favourite. Mm -hmm. What are the challenges of selling antique farms? Mostly fighting against misinformation mm -hmm. and adhering to the law, I yeah. think. Um, most unfortunately, I'm going to be really controversial here, Fran. <gasps> yeah, are you, controversial. Are you ready? I think most. No, let me change most to some. Yeah. Some dealers um, and collectors and people just in general um, that handle antique weaponry don't follow all the laws, mm -hmm. um, and it's through because sometimes they change the laws like overnight and they don't yeah. tell anybody so so you can that that's uh difficult to sort of to adhere to if you don't know it but um i really try and follow all of them with the ivory laws everything so obviously we have some restricted uh, materials um and there's they're quite complicated mm. a lot of them don't make huge amount of sense um and following all those laws is a challenge um, especially, so I always err on the side of extra caution, mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of, a lot of people, um, probably a bit more old school people mm -hmm. that don't bother with that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's probably the, the biggest challenge, but it's, it's, it's okay to do, you mm -hmm. can do it. Um, but it's more convenient not to, Yeah. but then it jeopardizes your future if you don't do it and also i'd hate an antique sword to end up on the news mm. um or to get the rest of them banned from royal mail or something because it's come through the packaging that mm. kind of thing so that's that's the biggest challenge it's a bit of a boring challenge yeah um but it's an important one of those grown-up things you yeah. know that you have to adhere to keeping yeah. all your t's crossed and your eyes dotted exactly. yeah and keeping up with all the changes yeah um, but what keeps you coming back for more? Do you know, I, I, there's nothing in particular. I think I just love everything. Yeah. I, and that is part of my problem. I'm not really an expert <laughs> on anything. I, um, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. I love everything. I love cleaning swords up. I love saving mm -hmm. items that, that would normally have been rusted away. Um, I love weapons from a variety of cultures and uh, countries and ages and different types of weapon like you know there's quite a few daggers and we've got mm. guitars and we've got spearheads and we've got axes and uh, we've got some uh, flintlocks and things like that down there so I think I think I just I just love everything that's what keeps me coming back and the community as well is really nice mm. I've, I've made some amazing friends and met so many amazing people um, particularly through my Instagram 
Mm. Um, so that keeps you going as well. It's it's, it's a tiny community, but it's very yeah. warm. Yeah, and it is very warm. Yeah, the vast majority of people are absolutely lovely mm. um, because they love what they do. I think so. Yeah, yeah. it's that genuine sort of sincere, um, like no politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, no there's no way to really sort of fall out with people mm-hmm. um because we're kind of discussing factual yeah sort of you're objects. dealing in you know, it's you know yeah. it's a sword it's a sword you know it's not there's there's no different sort of shades of things um so yeah i think the whole package is, is really good mm-hmm. um i'll just put a flag in there so if we want to have a little break here okay yeah. you can have a little rest i'll just i'll have a I'll... have a drink of tea <laughs> three two one what's one piece that you want but don't currently have uh, and why is it important is... to you <laughs> <laughs> don't add more it's a really, really difficult <laughs> question um there's i kind of want to experience one of everything like of every weapon in every culture mm-hmm. um and there's a heck of a lot i haven't experienced um, so to narrow that down is really difficult, but I think, oh, that is, that is tough. Um, <laughs> I think I would, am I limited to swords? No. Okay. I think, uh, I, I haven't had enough axes in my life. Axes. And um, I think I'd quite like a few more sort of Mughal dynasty axes. That'd be cool. Uh, oh, maces. Mm. I've only had one mace, which is over there, which is a pear mace. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't mind... Uh, a flanged yeah, mace. Yeah, a nice, a nice flanged mace. That'd Everyone be cool. loves a flanged mace. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Especially with a dagger in the bottom. Every home should have one. Yeah, they should, really. <laughs> um, so, yeah, a mace would be cool. Uh, also pole arms mm-hmm. i'm not really very well versed in those so like a nice bec de corbin mm. or a halberd or something like that um but also armor i'm not mm. I, I haven't really experienced much armor i've never worn like a male shirt or anything um it'd be really interested interesting to experience the weight and mm. um how it might limit you or not limit you uh, in your movements uh, and plate armour, that kind of thing. Um, so, yes, pretty much everything. So I would like everything, please. Mm. And, yes, um, <laughs> all the toys. Yeah, all the toys. That's um, <laughs> For Christmas. Um, so, obviously having such a, you know, diverse, large range of toys, you have to yeah. keep them, you have to look after your toys. So what yeah. are some do's and don'ts of uh, weapon maintenance? Um, and also they do their best to rust as well yeah. I have to say they, they try really hard to make life difficult um, and there's been quite a few times where I've cleaned something perfectly waxed it put it away and a couple of months later it's got corrosion on uh, as actually this sword in particular mm-hmm. is in beautiful condition which one are we looking at here so this is an 1821 light cavalry saber mm-hmm. so it's got it's a british military saber um and it has a cut and thrust blade the fuller and it has a knuckle bow with two branches mm-hmm. uh three bar they sometimes call it three bar yeah. uh, steel scabbard so if we look at the blade it's in really nice condition mm. really shiny this is unpolished this is just 
basically it's been stored um, but there is somewhat here if you look on the blade here yeah, little, little speckle, dark mark yes that's that happened under my under my custodianship oh. and it really annoys me so because this is this is really it's not immaculate and it's not immaculate anymore no and i really looked after it as well yeah. so i don't i've honestly i just found a little patch of rust on it i don't know where it came from but Gosh. it's a lovely sort but apart from that it looks new yeah it's in really good condition uh, original polish um and unmarked so mm. it's probably it might it's a bit of a mystery uh, it looks like a British military sabre, mm -hmm. but it probably actually wasn't. It might have gone overseas uh, for the export market or something like that. Mm -hmm. But um, lovely frost etching as well on the blade. Yeah, beautiful. So you have to work hard if you have a large collection. Mm -hmm. um, and I think vigilance is the, is the best thing. You have to be really vigilant. You have to check everything. Um, and you have to become one with Renaissance wax. Yes. Um, and um, knowing how to neutralise active rust, mm -hmm. which is fairly simple. Do you have some kind of maintenance programme that you stick no, to? Or you no, just do I, as and when? Most of my, my blades are stored not uh, in their scabbards. So I can see, you can I see. Can see things right at a glance. Um, and I also have little secret packets of the, you know, the moisture. Oh, the silica gel. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. So I have little secret packages and stuff um, hidden strategically in display cases and stuff. Um, but it's basically as and when I go, oh, I haven't seen that source for a little while. Mm -hmm. So I'll get it out and I'll um, give it a quick look. And then I'll usually use a really soft cloth just to wipe it down, even if there's no rust or anything on it. And then re-wax it, uh, a couple of, a couple of coats of very soft So just wax. literally soft cloth, and wax. Yeah, it, it's really simple. Once you've got it to where you want it yeah, in condition, that's how you keep it there. Yeah, if you're bringing a sword up to that kind of condition from lots of active rust, you've just bought the sword. The previous um, owners haven't known anything about sword care. It's a lot more work, and mm. there's a lot more techniques and skills involved. But if your sword's in a good condition where you want it already, yeah, just, just very basic maintenance. Mm. Um, it's, quite, it's quite easy to do. And sort of what are the don'ts? Are very, have you got any horror stories of things that you've witnessed um, or heard about? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't go into specifics, but there, um, there are quite a few people that you see online who are quite happy to very roughly mm -hmm. treat sort antique swords. So that they, they will get out grinders yeah. and things like that. And um, there's been, I, I've owned quite a few tools that have clearly been really rusted and pitted and then ground back mm -hmm. um, and left. So you can see all the pits still, but then there's fresh steel but the fresh steel isn't polished and it's mm. very raw looking and things like that. That that's really common. So it's been ground right down. To oh yeah, raw. yeah, yeah. And then um, people, because uh, I I'm actually some people say you can't use power tools on antiques, and I actually disagree with that. I think if you are really careful and you know what you're doing, I think most power tools are absolutely fine. And we did, um, you know, like Henry Wilkinson, for instance, he had power tools. He had Victorian equivalent 
uh, rider hammers and things like that, where they were all powered by steam. Um, so if he had access to Dremels and Makitas and mm-hmm. you know whatnot, he would be using them today. So yeah. I, I think it's absolutely fine. You just have to know when to stop and yeah. when to start, whether it needs it or not, whether you should even do restoration or cleaning. I mean, yeah. I don't really call myself a restorer. Um, I'm, I'm more of a sword cleaner, I yeah. would say. So I, I remove dead rust. Uh, uh, well, not dead rust. I remove live rust, and mm-hmm. dead rust is kind of usually okay for mm-hmm. me to leave on. Um, but some people don't like it at all. Some people want that absolutely perfectly fresh, How do you know the steel. difference between uh, dead rust and live rust? Um, well, dead rust is usually black, and if you, say, put your finger over it... Uh, not much will come off if it's live rust usually quite a lot will come off on your finger and it's usually a bit more red red yeah um but yeah the live rust is just it's any that's active which you want to neutralize otherwise it'll keep eating your sword blade um but dead rust to me is as a collector is just a sign of its life the life it's had and um, those scars are there for a reason Mm because you know maybe it it has been neglected or maybe they are battle damage Mm -hmm. uh, which we can never really know but um, yeah that's part of its life Um, tells a story exactly active rust is not part of its life and I do think because there there is a minority in the community that would say we don't touch active rust either oh really yeah Um, and some people are very vocal about that so there are occasionally arguments online Mm. Um, uh, and uh, that's not something I agree with because it's at the end of the day lessening how much of that sword is yeah. surviving for future generations and it's Slowing like we always say down the de- degradation exactly of it yeah that. and we need to protect these things because mm. they are heritage um, mm. and they're important from that point of view so anything that keeps that keeps them going longer for future mm. generations is good i think uh, but yeah it's it's all experience really yeah so usually at this point in the, the live stream, if this were a live stream, I would be yeah. going to the viewers and asking them for questions, but this is a recorded episode. So what we did was we asked um, folks on Instagram to send in some questions. Now, some of them are suitable <laughs> <laughs> to share <laughs> with with uh, the listeners at home. So I'm going to go through these Uh this one made me laugh. I couldn't resist this one. What's the dumbest sword you've ever seen? That's from at row underscore Bert dot Y. Well, <laughs> I think I, I've got to delve into the world of fantasy. Okay. Surely. Um, I think most, most real life swords, even when they're really outlandish looking, because there are some strange... Uh, ethnographic swords you know some african swords and some indian swords are quite strange compared to very sort of straight laced european sabers and stuff so there's some really strange uh shapes out there but they all have a good reason behind Mm. their forms um so i don't think we can call anything real dumb yeah so we must look at hollywood and things (laughs) like that and i have to i used to play world warcraft quite a lot Mm -hmm. and Oh my goodness! The the wep- some of the swords and weapons in there are just impossible to use. And like just, Final like Fantasy. More, yeah, yeah, absolutely huge things. Let's put more spikes on the sword. Yeah. You know, loads spikes all over the handle. Let's yeah. put even the pommel, loads of spikes, so that you basically. But I've seen that Fury had a sword like that. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, there's okay. there's examples of. Uh, 
I think someone had a reproduction made of a longsword yeah. with spikes coming out of the pommel. So that, what, as in so, going yeah. down? Yeah, so like three spikes coming out right, that okay. way, not into yeah. your hand, so but you yeah. could use them. Okay, well, I mean, that sounds a little bit sensible. Yeah, yeah. And you do get uh, things like African arm daggers and things like that. I don't mm. think I have one that have what's called a skull crusher <laughs> on the bottom, which is like a blade on the on the bottom of the pommel. But yeah, the um, the fancy ones where it's like literally all yeah. spikes. You know where you, you would just hurt yourself yeah. immediately? Um, just so, ornate yeah, for the sake of that, it. That kind of thing, yeah. Have you never come across a sword that's been blinged out to excess? Oh, like. yeah. well, um, in British uh, sword history, there was this, uh, this thing called the Lloyd's Patriotic Fund. So in Victorian uh, society, this organisation would uh, commission swords for people they wanted to uh, praise or commemorate or something. So if you did something amazing, like um, I, I think maybe Nelson had one, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, you'd get a Lloyd's Patriotic fund sword and it is literally everything you could possibly put on, on it as in gold and all that kind of thing it's there's so much uh there's so much bling i've said bling again Frank. yeah sorry. there's so much bling um <laughs> it, it's just crazy but you know like i don't think you could ever use the sword yeah. it's just so perfect and just literally laden with gold you know that kind of thing so but they're a little bit too much for me mm-hmm. as well yeah i i quite like slightly more workmanlike yeah, I think so, yeah. Okay. Um, can This comes from Runguj Fauja 9600. Can we learn about the basics of restoration of blades? Yes. You said you'd call yourself a cleaner rather than yeah. a restorer, but how <laughs> well, far into that would you go? Um, it's definitely possible. I mean, I'm completely self-taught with everything. And um, the skills and techniques you have to be brave with because you're working on something that is an antique and you've probably bought it with your money yeah so if you wreck it you know what i mean yeah exactly so you have to be brave but i've i found that being brave hasn't really led to that many downsides so i the way i've learned to do it is by experimenting so i'll do trial and error but i'll also run it past uh peers so i'll say i'll say to some to someone is it okay if I do this ethically? Like, mm-hmm. if I add gold where there used to be gold, but there isn't now, is mm-hmm. that okay? Mm-hmm. And so you, you have to find the, the sort of the right temperature amongst the community, mm-hmm. I think, to know that you're not doing anything wrong. Um, and then you have to do it. Yeah. And it is, it's pretty easy to do. Sword cleaning is pretty easy to do. The hard thing is actually getting all of the tools and the products and stuff together and then knowing when to stop yeah through that experience because you you can make a, a pretty much any sword perfectly polished mm-hmm. and brand new looking but should you do that that's yes. the really big question yeah uh and i think for me most of the time it's no you shouldn't really do that yeah. um, whether that's because you're going to erase history from it uh mostly you will erase value mm. um and also because maybe you should leave it for the next owner which who might be much better at doing mm. restoration or cleaning yeah um there's there's lots of it's a good point actually because we don't you know things in the future yeah absolutely. might improve yeah we, and new, like... new techniques and new um new machinery and things like mm. i mean we have things like laser rust removal and yeah. all sorts of things 
Um, I remember talking to Francesca Levy, and yeah. she was saying that in the Victorian era, people were cleaning with brick brick dust and right, oil, yeah. a yeah. sort of Mild paste, and using yeah, that to absolutely. clean stuff up. Yeah, and they, they, they varnished a lot as well, so I, I've often removed... Victorian varnish from things because mm. um, they thought that was okay and it, it's not too bad varnishing uh, mm. but um, it can craze and it leaves uh, a certain rust pattern which is really pain to sort of get out um, but yeah it's that sort of first do no harm yeah leave it for future bit. generations yeah, to absolutely. pick up and... yeah but there's different levels of it of cleaning as well so mm. um, you mentioned Francesca so um, conservators will probably look at a lot of the things that i do and um antiques collectors in general and be horrified Mm -hmm. but um because they're working on amazing things Mm. and we're working on amazing things as well but they're a lot more run-of-the-mill sort of thing there's a lot more out there and um you can't um well i haven't got the time to spend ages with microscopes and stuff like that, even though I would love to, because mm. I re- I love the little close-in work with, scal- yeah. with scalpels and yeah. stuff. Um, so it's sort of like horses for courses yeah. and things, but it's knowing which of those worlds you sort of live in and how far you should go. Mm. And I've definitely, I, I love... I love going, uh, listening in with conservators and stuff, and, yeah. and the interview you did. She, I noticed like she's still working on these amazing yeah. uh, Japanese uh, spears. Yeah, I think with, I uh, saw they've those. got like a layer of uh, mother of pearl. They're yeah, something like four meters long, something ridiculous. Yeah. It's incredible. And the inside is yeah. collapsed, so they're just trying to literally. Yeah. It's like a jigsaw puzzle trying yeah. to get these things. And th- that is a totally different world. Yeah. To the kind of sword cleaning that um, I do through necessity mm. um, we don't have to do anything that advanced no. um, and it's it's more I don't I don't know if it's robust but it's more I don't it's less fiddly work really mm. you know just getting getting most of the stuff we do is sort of like getting rid of rust um, and in terms really of materials and um, products what would you recommend um, well I have a little plug because i've got an article on my website where i've listed all the uh, materials and things mm-hmm. but the basic the basic stuff is uh i use a polish called autosol yeah uh, really easy to find renaissance wax yeah lots and lots and lots of rags um and i use um a variety of picks so i have some bamboo picks some copper picks dental picks mm-hmm. scalpels um Porcupine quills are meant to be a good one. Yeah, I've got some of those. Yeah. yeah. Um, really sharp. Mm. The first time I used a porcupine quill, I put it straight through my finger. Oh, yeah. It bled so much, I couldn't believe it. And so I had a glove on and it just literally just filled up with blood. It like, right through really, your hand. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they're pretty good. Um, I have some like self-made ridiculous tools where I've just gone, oh, that's really good at scraping this. <laughs> so I'll just put some sort of weird handle on it. And I, kind of, um, I use sandpaper. Uh, sometimes that's something that you need to be careful with mm. um, but you can get extremely fine grit sandpapers um, uh, steel wool would be like f- zero 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 gauge really fine gauge sort of thing um, but yeah I mean anything you can do with your hand yeah. is probably not gonna really be that bad on steel mm-hmm. um, if you 
remember that things like brass, because we see a lot of brass, swords are basically brass and steel, mm-hmm. the kind of ones that I see, uh, with bits of wood and shagreen and stuff. Um, if you use stuff that's good on steel, on brass, it will generally be quite bad for the brass. Right. And you will scratch easily, the brass is quite soft. Mm-hmm. Um, so the products and things are fairly simple but once you start getting into it more that's when your shells start multiplying because you then start having instead of having like say auto solve for for 20 different jobs in the workshop you'll then go well actually this might be slightly better in this situation than auto solve so it then grows and grows and Mm -hmm. you end up with loads of different sort of brands and things like that but the basic sword maintenance is pretty easy Mm -hmm. Uh, and so i've got a list of things on my article we'll check out your article what's just remind us what your website uh, fordmilitaryantiques.com fordmilitaryantiques.com uh two more questions your most treasured item that's from nobus dad 222 would it be that very first bayonet Actually, I don't think it's anything in my collection. Um, it's a, I think, does it have to be a sword? It's it just could item, be anything, it? it's just okay. item. Um, I think it's probably my grandfather's medals then, Aww. I think, which um, we can't see here. Mm-hmm. Um, because that, you can't really replace that. Is that really, what inspired that you, do you think? Oh, it's definitely part of it. Yeah, he was, um, he was a Lance Corporal during the Second World War. And he was killed in action in uh, Italy, the Battle of Monte Cassino. Mm. Um, so he was only, I think my dad was only about two years old when he died. So um, I never knew him. But that sort of sacrifice is always something I knew from a really young age. Mm. Um, and so to have his medals is, because we don't really have anything else of his. It's It's quite important. And it's definitely influenced my interest in italian military history mm-hmm. um because uh, casino was part of the italy campaign it was a yeah. bit of a difficult battle um and things like that so yeah probably probably the my medals. grandfather was there as well was he really yeah. a casino yeah <gasps> i believe so and i was in italy um did he survive yes he did oh, good. um so final question uh, what's the most difficult style of sword to find? That's that could be there's multiple answers to this. I imagine yeah. that's from Angel Martin Costa. Well, uh, <laughs> I think for me, uh, if we're talking about the market, let's say we're talking about the sort of antiques collectors yeah. market, it's going to be something really old and Iron Age because iron doesn't last very long, so. I think it's probably some of the most desirable stuff is going to be like say Roman a Roman gladius that kind of thing. Mm. That's going to be really difficult to find. Um, I've never seen one <laughs> in in real life, but then I haven't really looked either because yeah. that kind of that's a different area to where I yeah. sort of deal with. So I wouldn't be going to those sort of fairs and. Um, I mean, uh, what shops. conditions would you need to have a gladius survival that time? Gosh. This is a very wet country. Yeah, absolutely. So if they yeah. were leaving stuff lying around, it would end yeah. up in the, in the soil. And, and, and then they're, they're so highly desirable. Mm. Museums and everybody Just are going to be after up. them. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's going to be something like that, I think. I think. But gladius. to be honest, any anything 
medieval and uh, earlier is mm. difficult to find and expensive. And um, that's kind of why I don't have any of those things. I think the fact that, that those things are hard to find is kind of a blessing in a way for uh, the British military sabre movement. I'm talking about within the HEMA community. Like yeah. People tend to get into swords as a sort of martial art because they yeah. want to study, say, longsword and the medieval stuff. Mm. And then when they sort of take a taste for collecting things, the only thing available to them is this period that we've looked at today. Yeah. And of course, I think that is a big, like, another again, a gateway drug for British yeah. military. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, there's a lot of um, sources, um, like Rowworth, folks like that, on how to fight with sabres and small swords and spadroons and things that yeah. sort of sparked a lot of interest. Um within the HEMA community, I think. So that lack yeah. has kind of worked in. Well, anything in that gets people into it. Anything, is, yeah. Is brilliant, yeah. Um, and British Victorian military stuff is pretty good because it there's still quite a lot of it. Mm. It's still really easy to find um, and relatively cheap. Um, but they're also generally really well made. Mm. So you can quite, um, you can get for your money, pretty good example. Um, if you say wanted to go and let's say you wanted a sort of civil war era mortuary hilt or something you're going to pay quite a lot of money and it's probably going to be quite rusty mm-hmm. um, or have the scars of rust and things like that um, so if you like shiny well well-made historical swords victorian yeah. is, is a fantastic gateway drug to get you into it and it's um, a real piece of history yeah there's absolutely loads of fascinating... yeah and there's so much history yeah from yeah. the empire and that kind of thing um, yeah, and that, that also leads you into other cultures. So mm. my interest in uh, Indian arms comes directly from being interested in the empire, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Because it's really interesting to see um, what a British officer, for instance, how his regulation sword would then match up against a tulwar mm. and a doll shield, mm-hmm. and how the, uh, the tactics... Um, would interplay between the two, um, so it just leads you into so many Lots just branches out. Holes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so many rabbit holes. Um, so yeah, it's all it's all fascinating. But anything that gets people into it is is brilliant. Okay, it's been absolutely fascinating and lovely to speak to you, Matthew. Well, my pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you very for much. coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. To show your appreciation, please give us a five-star review on your podcast platform or support our work by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash swordwomen. Go to at swordwomen on Instagram to see upcoming interviews or visit bythesword.net to learn about our events or visit our Facebook page, By the Sword. Our sponsor today is none other than our Patreon members. You folks are bringing swords and HEMA to listeners worldwide, so thank you. To support our work and receive exclusive benefits, visit patreon.com forward slash swordwomen.